Bhagavato Arato Sammasambhudasa Homage to the blessed, noble, and perfectly enlightened one. Namo Saranto Suche Doye Volahudi Sanyao Sanputoshi Namo Saranto Suche Doye Volahudi Sanyao Sanputoshi Usham Shen Shen Wei Miao Fa Bai Chen Wan Jie Nan Sao Yu Wo Jin Jen Wan De Shou Chi the unsurpassed, deep, profound, subtle, wonderful Dharma in a hundred thousand million eons is difficult to encounter. Now that I've come to receive and hold it within my sight and hearing, I bow to fathom the thus come one's true and actual meaning. 师父上人,各位师兄,大家阿弥陀佛。Venerable Master, friends in the Dharma, welcome to our Sutra Lecture tonight. It's the 15th of January, 2011. And we are going to be lecturing on the Avatamsaka Sutra, the Flower Adornment Sutra. And we're going to start tonight the way we always do, by invoking the Buddhas and the Bodhisattvas of the Avatamsaka Assembly. And... We're going to be chanting these two lines of Chinese text that you find on the cover of your sutra. So you want to turn to that text and we'll put our hearts and our breath together and invoke that holy name. Namo
please turn in your text to page 16 and page 17. We're on the third paragraph. We'll start with the Chinese. Okay. Tou Dao Zhizi. 若圣人中，得二种果报；得二者，一者贫穷，一者贫穷，二者共财不得自在。共财不得自在。Okay, over to the right-hand side, page 17, third paragraph. The offense of stealing also causes living beings. To fall into the three evil paths. If they're born among people, they have two kinds of retribution. One, they are poor. Two, their wealth is held in common, and they do not have free use of it. Okay. This is the Flower Adornment Sutra, the Avatamsaka Sutra, talking about the Bodhisattva path. What does it mean to be a Bodhisattva? What is a Bodhisattva? How do they live? How do you live like one? This particular sutra talks about that, and this particular chapter is the, the number one chapter for giving the uh, details of the Bodhisattva's life. And in this chapter, this is the, the part of that chapter that is the most concrete. This is not philosophy. This is not principle. This is hard, cold, nuts and bolts of the way the world works when you lift the hood and look at the the engine that drives what happens to us. This is the what it looks like inside the engine compartment. This is talking about cause and effect. Is my voice loud enough? Rin, is my voice loud enough in the back? Okay, good. This is, I've, I said this uh, several times, in the last couple of weeks, but this is maybe my my favorite part of the entire sutra when it comes to uh, clarity. This is the clearest description of 
what makes the quality of our lives the way it is that I've ever read. This is talking about uh, the way it feels inside our skin when life comes down to the, the plot line, the story of your life. What happened next? This is the inside story. Okay? It's talking about the ten goods and the ten evil deeds. The ten good deeds and the ten evil deeds. And the way the sutra gave it to us uh, earlier in this chapter, which we were lecturing on the last couple of months, was evils first. The ten evil deeds and the ten good deeds. Because the way the Buddha described it, he said... At this point, we've already established that we're interested in the spiritual path. We are, our, our shop talk word for it is cultivators, cultivators of the way. Right? That's, the, that's our jargon, the Buddhist jargon. We say, people who cultivate the way. What does that mean? How do you cultivate the way? Um, both terms need explanation. Cultivate comes from uh, a metaphor for gardeners. If you're a gardener or if you grow crops, maybe you're more than a gardener. Maybe you're a farmer. Maybe you, you depend on the food you grow to eat. So if that's you, then you cultivate. You think about somebody who's got a hoe in their hands or a pitchfork or a, a, a spading tool or something to, what, to loosen up the soil, to mm, fill in the amendments, fill in the fertilizer, to keep the weeds away, to sometimes dig holes for the fence, and in general, guard the crops so that the earth can do its thing, growing. That's what cultivators are. And why do we talk about, why do we use that if we're talking about the spiritual path? It's because the Buddha described what we do to our minds like a garden, like gardeners. We're gardening in our mind. Instead of a hoe in our hands, it's a, uh, a dharma tool, such as bowing, such as meditation, such as chanting, whatever method we have, prayer, virtuous life, giving, generosity, karma, yoga, doing good deeds. All these different things are the tools that a spiritual gardener uses in what's called the ground of the mind, in the garden of the mind. So that's the, you get the analogy, right? You get the, the, the picture that it's trying to explain. So that's the cultivator part. We are cultivating the garden of wisdom in our minds. So that's the cultivator. The cultivating the way, the Tao, the second word in that lingo, in that jargon term, cultivating the way, means the spiritual path, spiritual lifestyle, a lifestyle that is looking at something, looking at your life other than the material side. The material side is not unimportant. What kind of a house you live in, what kind of a car we drive, how much money we have in the bank, um, the job that we go to during the day or don't go to because we're between jobs. That's all okay, and the Buddha Dharma talks about that. But the Tao, the path that the Buddha is describing, is often paying attention to the invisible parts of life. 
to the parts that don't have dollar signs attached to them and you can't buy and sell. Um, everybody's got that part of their lives, the Tao, the spiritual side. But some of us pay more attention to it than others. Uh, monks and nuns are people who have pretty much, by and large, set aside the daily pursuit of the material in favor of looking to the invisible, the immaterial, the intangible parts of life, by and large. They've said, I'm committed to doing that more than I am getting rich, for example, or setting up a family or uh, building properties, etc. So, cultivating the way is somebody who is actively engaged in using tools, dharma tools or techniques or methods, to pay attention to the invisible parts of life that pay off with invisible stuff, invisible payoffs. Like what? Wisdom, compassion, blessings, peace of mind, well-being, merit, virtue, goodness. All those are invisible, can't see them, but they're absolutely real. And that's, that's the, you could say, the, the fruits and the flowers that you grow in the garden of the mind. So, that's, if, if that is you, if that's something that you're doing with your life, you're paying attention to those invisible parts, then you are a xiu dao de ren. You're a cultivator of the way. That's how Master Xuanhua would, would talk about it. And it doesn't have to be grand. You don't, you don't get a merit badge. You don't put on a uniform. Um, it can be as simple as turning away from a bad habit. Suppose you say, this year I'm going to kick it. I'm going to get away from it. Whatever that might be. It might be profanity. You're really going to try to reduce the number of times during the day that you use four-letter words. Good for you. Clean up your mouth karma. It could be that you are absolutely saying, no more pornography. Just quit it. Makes you feel tired anyway. Makes you feel not good. But it's sure your eyes go running for those websites, right? You say, no more. Enough. It's just the same, isn't it? No more, right? You say, that's it. Okay, that decision. Suppose it's not that. Suppose you never surf the web looking at websites like that. Suppose you decide, finally, finally, you're going to let go of meat. You're finally convinced that what you get from a good steak is stuff you don't want. That what goes in the body with that sirloin or Big Mac gives you about 20 seconds of pleasure and then a long, long sense of, why did I do that? Right? It's that flash in the tongue and then as soon as you chew it, it goes, oops, and all that. So, whatever it is, whatever your change is that you might decide, 
Maybe it's too tuned in to a New Year's resolution. Notice this year, I didn't even bring them up. Last year, last week was the week to talk about New Year's resolutions. We even lectured on New Year's Day. And did you notice? I didn't mention them this year. Why? I gave up. <laughs> Fruitless, right? Years past, I would say, anybody remember last year's New Year's resolution? They'd all go, nah, don't even remember it. Right, you know. So I learned, and okay, no problem. Let's make a new life resolution, okay? As soon as you do, whatever that might be, that you are going to really set it down this time. And you look at your face as you say it. And you might even kneel in front of the Buddha in your home altar or here at the monastery. Say, I'm going to change. I'm going to stop that. Whatever that is, as soon as you have that thought, you are a Shodaudarin. It doesn't take shaving your head and, you know, deciding that you're going to meditate every day to become a cultivator. It can be something as subtle as saying, I just don't want to scold people anymore. I don't want to frown when somebody disagrees with me. I'm going to listen instead. Something as simple as listening instead of shutting it out with your face and with your energy. That is already moving towards the energy of spring and away from the energy of winter. It's moving towards softness as opposed to hardness. It's moving towards the Tao and away from the, the opposite of the Tao, which is not renewal. Okay, you get the idea. So, cultivator of the way, shield out of it. If that is you, here we are. The Buddha is saying, okay, good. You're in the room. You're in the ballpark. Grab yourself a cushion there. We got some seats in front. Don't be shy. All right, he would say, you're in the ballpark. You're in the room. Here's the way to make it work. And then he would lay out what are called the ten evil deeds and the ten good deeds. He'd lay them out and say, here they are. Now, why did I, as I introduce these, why did I preface it with this idea of explaining cultivating the way? Because, here's the thing, when you are sitting in my place, when you're sitting here, and you mention the word evil and the word good, I, being a thinking person, would right away think, uh-oh, here comes the judgment. The guy up there in front is going to point and say, good, evil. It's hard to avoid those thoughts. I want to say, that's not the way the Buddha delivered this teaching. This is not how the Buddha explained it. The Buddha is not here judging, saying, evil people. He's saying, or good people good people because I like them and evil people because I don't like them. That's not the way he delivered it. And it took me a long time to appreciate that because, you know, I grew up in the 60s trying to be as free as, freer than any generation of Americans had ever been. Don't fence me in was our style. Anything, any rule you give me, I will break. That was really how we lived in the 60s. It was a time of amazing uh, experimentation. So, anyhow, 
The way the Buddha delivered these ten goods and ten evil deeds was saying, should you be a person who decides that you want to take it up a notch, that you want to take your life forward, how do I mean that? In understanding what's going on, in seeing clearly what's going on, in going past the surface. Something happens. Situation blows up. If you are not cultivating the way, what do you do? You just react. You react with instinct or face. Right? You react with fear. Whatever comes first, that first surface reaction, that's standard. Okay? Somebody says, Yo, mama! And you automatically, you know, you're, you're ready. You're ready for action. As soon as you hear somebody, you know, don't you talk about my mother, you know. Universally, that's true. Sometimes it includes sisters. Why, you know, first word and there's, there's going to be action. All right, that's not the cultivator's response. What does a, someone who's practicing the spiritual path do is because they have decided they're going to take their life up a notch, they go past the surface. They want to look past the person who's there insulting their mother. You know, and they go, why are you concerned about my mother? You, got, you had a bad day, right? It's like, that's my mother. She has no relationship to you whatsoever. How are you feeling? You know... You're, you're upset, man. Dude, I'm not going to increase your fire. You know, it's like, sorry, you know. My mother, she's, you know, she stands for herself. You know, your comments about my mother tell me more about you than they do about my mother. Right? And it's like, you see, and suddenly this person, instead of being a threat to your face, is like some sad individual who's got trouble. Something's on his mind. Something's on her mind. They're afflicted. They're on fire. And you getting on fire just makes more fire instead of just not responding or putting some water out. Of course, you have to eat face. There's a price on that, which is every time you refuse to catch fire, there's all this expectation of, you know, what does that say about you? What it says about you is you're strong. You're looking past the surface. You're not confused by the circumstances. Somebody who can do that, then our teacher, Master Shren Hua, would say, you have turned the state around instead of being turned by it. It's easy to catch on fire. And then it's just a question of who's faster, who's stronger, who's got more gong fu, right? But if you can turn the state, then you got another chance to understand. And you might save some dentistry, dental, dental work. You, know, you might save your tooth. You might save his tooth on your knuckles. You might save a trip to the hospital. Who knows? Insurance, lawyers, police, all that stuff. You know, whatever. But the point is, somebody who is cultivating can, in that split second where you make that decision, they don't have to move based on instinct. They have choices. That's what wisdom 
brings you is you see, you see clearly. If that is you, if you are someone who says, yeah, I want to do that, you are in the Buddha's room as the Buddha says, okay, here are the ten good deeds, the ten evil deeds. What I'm telling you these for is because I already got free of our, the technical term we use is ignorance. I got free of ignorance. And I have wisdom now. And I would like you to get free of ignorance and make your wisdom come alive. So, because I want to get you there, watch out for these ten things. Watch out. Because these ten things will block you. They'll obstruct you. They'll delay you on the path. And you might be full of energy and chugging towards meditation and living right, but if you do these ten things, you're going to slow down. It's go- something's going to come out of left field and knock you off your feet. That's really the way the Buddha explained them. What is that? That's practical. This is practical spirituality. Right? This is spirituality you can use. It's not theory. It's not you are good, you are bad. It's you can get free. Watch out for these ten if you can catch these ten and turn them around, they work for you. You have ten tools at your disposal which will enhance your spiritual path instead of having obstacles that will knock you down. Okay, so that's our context. That's the background. Here we go. Um, Last week, we uh, heard the first of what are called the ten retributions for the evil deeds done for the un... Now, let me footnote here. Let me step back. There are people who would lecture on this text who would not use the word evil. They would use the word unskillful. So when I say ten evils, I'm giving you the translation out of Chinese. It's the shi shan. U is pretty much translated as evil and shan is definitely good. If I used, we, we could, because we're, you know, this text, we're translating as we go. This is not, this is in English now for the first time. Second time, actually. Um, we could have translated that as the ten unskillful acts and the ten skillful acts, and you, you would have gotten the, the point. Um, we chose to keep it as good and evil because that's the way the Chinese presented it. So, all right. Last week, the first one came up. It was... The evil deed, the unskillful deed of killing can cause people to lose their human body as a result of the killing that you do. That's to say, in the next life, you will come back not as a human if you kill a lot. It says you can fall into the three evil destinies. I'm up on, on your page in 17 there, second paragraph. Among them, the offense of killing can cause living beings to fall to the hells, animals, and hungry ghosts. If they're born among people, they have two kinds of retribution. One, a short life. Two, much illness. Okay, we talked about that at length. And um, the evening, we went late last time, and the program that I had all prepared, we just put aside because it it was too rich. There was questions coming from 
left and right, and we, we're webcasting. This is going out to the Internet, and we're getting questions from online. And, and maybe what I might do right now is ask anybody if you have any residual questions. Did you think about this during the week? And, like, almost send me an email, but just had your finger over that key and didn't send it? Because now's your chance. If you, I, I'd like to respond if people had... Like, you remember back where your mind was last week hearing this? Did you, did this stir up anything? Because this is powerful stuff. It says, if you kill, you can lose your human body. If you don't lose your human body, you come back as a human being, what happens? Two things will happen to you if you killed a lot in your past life. One, your life will be short. Two, you're going to be sick a lot. Okay, that's a strong statement, right? That is not theory, that's not philosophy. That's the Buddha saying, here's what I see happens to people who kill a lot. Okay, let me add a, a note here. There's, there's a principle that underlies all ten of these. We did one last time, we're about to go to two this time. The underlying principle is the idea that every life is connected to every other life. The Buddha described um, people and animals and insects and he goes on to say ghosts, gods, asuras, these titan, these fighter beings that are also part of the ten, the ten paths of rebirth. He said we're all connected. If you think of what would it be like, it would be... Hmm, Think about the forest. Underneath the ground is water that nurtures all the trees. So, if you go over to Mirror Woods, you've got lots of tall redwoods, you've got manzanita, you've probably got some uh, spruce, things that coexist with redwoods, you've got scotch broom, that, that weed plant that grows. Um, you've got ferns. Not not a lot of things live under redwoods. They they're a pretty uh, uh, kind of a monoculture tree. But there are certain trees that grow there. Every one of those trees sends its roots down below, invisibly. You can't see them because they're under the ground. And they go and they pull up from the groundwater. Same groundwater nurtures all those trees alike. Right? It's not the case that there's redwood water and there's you know manzanita water. No, it's all the same. So likewise, the Buddha said, all living beings, that's to say humans, animals, etc., all are connected to the same nurturing flow connection called the Buddha nature. It's one place where all our roots connect. So, if I kill, even though I have taken the life of some creature that looks outside of me, in fact, I have, it's as if I took that knife to my own roots or took that gun and shot a hole in my own heart. The damage that's done is done to all, including me, the one who did the killing. The result is what? My share of health, 
and my connection to that deeper source is harmed. So that's the principle underlying these statements. Okay, so the Buddha is saying we're all connected. He sees it. I don't see it. But that's I'm taking that on on the Buddha's words. For me, I still think I stop here. Right? This is as far as I go. I stop with my skin. I have my name. I got my clothes. You know, but that's me. I don't see that deeper connection. But the Buddha is saying, in fact, we're completely connected. One, in some aspects, you can see it. For example, the oxygen and gases that I'm breathing in my lungs is in your lungs too. Okay, so we share the air. And that's easy to see that one. And if you extend it a little bit, you think all the ancestors who ever lived share the same air. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. breathed air that is still in the, in the world. Confucius still breathed air that is still in the world. Okay? Every man, woman, ancestor, Gandhi, breathe air that's still around. Okay, so, obviously. So the Buddha is saying, when what you do to one happens to all and to you. And there's a retribution. Okay, that's the idea. Kill happens, short life, much illness. Now, last week, we flipped it around. We said, what's interesting about this is the Buddha was describing what he saw. This is not his, like, his book that he's writing or his theory. He's saying, when I woke up, here's what I saw, that these acts bring on retribution. Flip it around. If instead of killing, we nurture life, we give well-being and life to others, there are two retributions. One is you live a long time, and two, you're healthy. So... For me, when I heard that, that made sense. It's like, oh, yeah, that seems to, that's logical. The opposite of these ten evils is the ten goods. If instead of killing, we give life. If we are cherishing of each other's humanity, share food, share blankets, mm, teach kids, keep people healthy like nurses, um, provide food. Did you all see the incredible story? Um, this was on the Daily Good. Charity Focus is Daily Good. It was about a guy. It was a homeless guy. Uh, I forget if it was Baltimore or where it was. But this guy, um, homeless, he was older, you know, kind of not not employable other than than, than handiwork. And so what did he do? He uh, was connected to a community. It was like a projects kind of neighborhood. And there were lots of elders there living alone, single occupancy, who had to, to get their food, had to come down to a local distribution point. Food was delivered but they had to come down and they had to like be nimble and get a share of the, the staples and the, the grains and the, the milk and the, the vegetables and fruits. 
and then carry it back up. Hard to do if you're old, you live on the fourth floor. You know, sometimes you just rather just stay in bed and go hungry than get out there and struggle for the food. So this guy made it his job every day or every week when the food, every couple of days, to be sure that Mrs. Brown and Mrs. White and Mrs. Washington and Mrs. Rodriguez and Mrs. Wynn all got their food. And he just made himself busy, first of all, in the people on his floor, and then it was the people in his wing, and then it was the people in his block, and then it was he organized some, some kids who were hanging on, got them doing it too. And pretty soon, this guy became the number one hero of the projects because he made the link between the deliveries and the elders. And he, at one point, the story goes on that he got sick at one point and uh, didn't show up for a couple of days. And everybody from the neighborhood went looking for him with food and hot drinks and blankets and just they missed him so much because he had, in the goodness of his heart, made, filled in a need that was there just because they asked him why he was working so hard for everybody. He said, well, he said, somebody had to do it. You know, needed to be done. So I just did it. Simple. You know, he saw it had to be done. So here, as soon as I saw that, I thought, this is exactly what the sutra is talking about. If you foster other people's lives, the result is, in the future, you live longer and you're healthy. So this guy was not going to be out of work. I mean, the fact that he wasn't getting a salary didn't mean he didn't work hard. He worked hard where it counted. And the reward, although you don't see rebirth, you know, our vision doesn't extend that far, but you can know that this guy is going to be healthy and long-lived. Furthermore, he's going to have people who support him, for sure. Okay, so there we are. We're, that was last week. Anybody re- recall questions you had at the time? Nope, going once. Twice. Yeah, you might think of it later. All right, feel free. If you do, if you want to pursue this and look into it, put your hand right up. Number two, the offense of stealing causes living beings to fall into the three evil paths. If they're born among people, they have two kinds of retribution. One, they're poor. Two, their wealth is held in common. They don't have free use of it. Okay, second unskillful action is what? Stealing. Stealing. Says, the Buddha says, can. You can steal. It's a free world, a free country, free world. If you steal, the Buddha is not going to frown at you and say bad and wrong. You go to jail. He's not. He says, oh, 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 you see what you did. Ah, you're a really good meditator, but guess what? You're going to go hungry. I wish you hadn't done that because now I got to think of some other way to to feed you. You know, you've just cut off your access to stuff. 
right? So that's, I think that's, that's probably a, a more accurate way of, of interpreting what the Buddha means when he says unskillful. He's not judging and saying, you're a bad person. He's saying, you're responsible for what happens to you. If you do it this way, you get this result. You do it that way, you get a different result. Take charge. Step into your life on these points and the quality of your life will change. These, these rules are so empowering. They put us in charge of what happens. Now, that would be more true if we started from started fresh. But as the Buddha described it, we're, we're this, this life where you have your name that people, your friends call you by and that your mom that you recognize and your, your playlist on your iPod is, you know, how you like it. That is one frame in a movie strip going clickety-click-click-click-click-click-click-click-click-click-click-click-click-click through the projector. 36, 32 frames a second? 26 frames a second? That's how many frames? 36? 36 frames a second. When 36 frames a second go through the projector, it looks like it's real, right? In fact, it's frame, 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 going click, 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 sprockets and the teeth going through. And it looks like a movie. In fact, it's a bunch of still frames. This lifetime, says the Buddha, is a still frame. We're looking at one, but through a passage, through the magic of motion pictures, it looks like it's moving. So, he says, this behavior produces a result. Change the behavior, get a different result. That's called wisdom. And it also says they're choices. So, choose wisely, grasshopper. Right? The only people who will laugh are people who saw Kung Fu. Remember? Remember? No, you don't. You're too young. Okay, all right. You can see how old I am. There was this amazing film, a uh, TV show. It's amazing. If you, there, are lots, if there are lots and lots of folks at a certain age, mind you, if you ask them, when did you first realize that there was Eastern philosophy, much less, much more Eastern religions, Buddhism, Hinduism, Taoism, Shintoism? When was the first time you actually saw something that woke you up to that whole thing? A lot of people will say, Kung Fu, the TV show. Right? Um, who's the actor? David Carradine. Okay, David Carradine. And his name was? Five points if you get his name. Kane! Got it. Five points. Well done. Way to go, Sam. What's that? What's that? Kwai Chang, right? Yeah, Kwai Chang. Kane, yeah, right. Spoken like a true Clevelander, man. Kwai Chang. Yeah. Probably Gui Zhang or something like that, but... Okay, Kwai Chang King. And remember, he walked like he, he looked like he was stoned. He just walked through the West kind of stupefied. He's always 
you know, uncomprehending. You know, that was his impression of samadhi. You know, it's like in front of my eyes, it's all the same. No, he just looked dopey. You know, but he had and and the other thing was every martial artist who ever saw kung fu will say this guy's a dancer and he is not a martial artist. He's a dancer and he was. David Carradine was a, a dance classically trained dancer. His kicks were really high and you know like that. And uh, his punches were very, very beautiful to watch, you know, but no, no, no strength, you know. So, Kung Fu. Anyway, a lot of people, a lot of people first got their, got their very first taste of anything touching on, on Asian spirituality and Kung Fu through that show. You know, good thing. I'm, I'm here spoofing it, you know, but it's like, I watched it. I really loved that show. And... The reason why I launched in this, this uh, digression was because the opening credits, right, the, the intro to the show had the master. And remember, there, he, he, remember that? He's got this flaming incense cauldron. Cauldrons aren't hot. You know, incensors aren't hot. The incense is hot. This censer was hot. Brands himself a dragon. So, and his teacher goes, Famous line, choose wisely, grasshopper. Right? So, anyway, so the Buddha is here saying to us, you all, those of you who didn't see it are wondering, what is he talking about? Yeah, so that's Kung Fu. Is it on, are there, is it on YouTube or maybe on, yeah, I bet you can probably find it. What's that? Must be, must be. Yeah, probably. At least it's on Hulu, I'm sure. I should go check it out on Hulu. So, this was the, the great awakening for a lot of us. Was wow, because you know he was cool. Huai Chang Kane was cool as he wandered through the West and stupefied, met every situation with this kind of slow comprehension. So uh, the choose wisely grasshopper was a little bit of wisdom, just a flavor, a little bit of wisdom, and the Buddha's here saying. Okay, here's your chance to indulge your greed and take something that is not yours. Choose wisely, cultivate Right? Why? Because if you take it and it's really not yours, what happens? He says there's results. There is a retribution for taking something more than is yours. Something that is really not yours. What is the retribution? One in the future, and that future could be in the next instant, but from the time that you take things that you know are not yours and steal, your share is reduced. Not that somebody takes it away from you. It's that the deeper connection that you share with everyone, you have harmed it. You have put a, a dent in... You've, you've crimped the hose that brings you material, stuff. You did it. The result is poverty, says the Buddha. All right. So, when we touch that, suddenly this is deep. Okay? This opens up profound questions. Such as, what about India? 
Okay? If you go to Calcutta, you cannot avoid the reality that there's a lot of poor people in Calcutta. I was in Calcutta in 1983, the very first time. And we were in downtown Calcutta. And right across, we were staying at the Mahabodhi Society, which is the, the Sri Lankan Buddhist uh, center in Calcutta. And looking out the window, there was, uh, we were opposite a, um, I think a university. And the university had a reflecting pool. I think it might have been a swimming pool at one time. And the water was, it hadn't been attended to for a long time. But it had water in it. It was big. It was maybe about as big as the, the women's seats here, just that, that much area. And the water was half, half full. And it was clear that the water had not been changed for quite some time. No such thing as aeration or filtration. It was just water there. And it was, it was thick water. It was, there was, you know, it was more of a sewer than it was water, but it was standing water. And there was a fence, and there was a street, and between the street and the fence was a pile of garbage. And it was clear that that pile of garbage had been there for a very long time. And it wasn't, it's, it was hard, you know, we we're sitting in the window talking about this and all of, you know, there were four of us watching this, looking out the window, our first view of Calcutta. And around this pile of garbage, there were about 50 people living in the pile of garbage. And it was clear that this was there, this is where they lived. They had lean-tos, they had things they'd stacked up, and these were Calcutta street folks, you know. And, and in the mornings, the moms would get up and go through the garbage, get a can, go over to the swimming pool, dip out the can, dip the can in, get some water, bring it back, start a fire with cow patties that they'd put up on the wall from the day before, like that, boil the water, go find something to put in it. And this mom is feeding her family. You know, bless her heart. She's feeding the kids. Boiling something in the can. And we were watching because we, we were marooned in Calcutta. We lost our passports. Another story. Uh, so watching mom cooking and... Kids coming, time to eat. She would serve this food to them, something that she'd found. And the kids would eat it and then go to the swimming pool and relieve themselves. The swimming pool was the toilet. And then in the morning it was time to bathe and they'd go to another part of the swimming pool and bathe. And dad would get his shave. Somebody would be, they'd be squatting, facing each other and one guy would be shaving and dad would be sitting there and around his must, big mustache, you know, and... This is the neighborhood. It's the neighborhood. And, you know, who am I to sit here and say, you know, anything? I grew up in Midwestern, Northwestern Ohio, mid middle class kid in Northwestern, hard scrabble, Toledo, Ohio. 
I had a house with a 50-foot lot. We had a car. We had a TV. You know, so a little different, but life. You know, it's life. And poverty. The, I, you know, it's like we watched and we learned. We, wow, things are, people are different. This is India. This is homeless India. There, now, you go around the corner and there is a great gate with flags on it and gold engraved incredible opulence and the Mercedes goes in and the gates close and this is wealth in Calcutta. You know, families who have the, the servants' entrances around back and they're side by side. So, you know, you look at that situation and think, what's the difference between the folks in the Mercedes or the Rolls Royce and the folks looking for the meal in the garbage pile that they sleep in? What's the difference? I think there's got to be something. What is the engine that gives the quality of life to these folks here that are so different from the other people just outside the gate? How interesting, you know. We watched and watched and watched and thought about that. Um, the story that, that uh, why we didn't have our passports and why we were sitting in the window watching life go on, you know. I'd never seen poverty at that level. I didn't understand people who probably never, ever sat on a toilet because there weren't toilets. There wasn't plumbing in the street in Calcutta. You know, come on. So what happened was uh, we, uh, I was traveling with uh, three other monks and a layperson through India. We'd come from Burma and we were on our way to, uh, to Europe, actually. We were going, Master Hua sent five of us around the world when we were uh, pushing us out of the nest to see how we'd survive on our own. So uh, we arrived in Calcutta and there was one layperson who knew we were there. And, oh, monks from California. Oh, American monks from California, city of 10,000 Buddhas. Oh, American monks from California in the Chinese tradition. Oh, huh. We know a Chinese temple. It's out in Chaubaga. Would you like to go to Chaubaga, to the Chinese temple? Uh, I don't think so. We will take you there. You know. Uh, do we have to go? Yes, yes, you must go. You know, this is the Chinese family. They'd learned all the Indian style. You know, they, they could wobble their heads with the best of them. You know. <laughs> so we must take you. You know. Uh, so what about our, we should talk to our hosts here at the Mahabodhi Society. And the monk who knew the score, his name was Asaji, and Asaji Bhante said, don't go. Don't go. And Asaji, he was interesting. He, some people said that he had a little bit of, of spiritual vision. Uh, true or not. So, the lay people showed up. They, had, they were merchants, and they had, uh, they had a Mercedes. And they said, oh, but we must take you out because you will get proper food there, isn't it? 
we'll give you a proper vegetarian lunch. And we were eating just fine in the Mahabodhi society. Indians are mostly vegetarian, you know, at least the folks who were Buddhist. So we said, we don't want to go. And they said, but we have rented a van. You must go. And besides, here are all the lay people who want to take you out there. Here's this, this whole, there's half a dozen people there really ready to take us. So, we, okay, okay, we don't have anything else to do until the evening. We'll go out to the Chinese Buddhist temple in Java. So, you know, Asaji basically said, you're on your own. Okay, go. So we get in the van, we go out, and Chalbaka, um, India, you know, sacred cows, they don't, they are very careful with cows, and by and large with, with life, you know, it's, that's one of the beauties of India. And we pass through on our way to Chalbaka a slaughter yard, a slaughterhouse. And in India, there's not, it's not you know, hidden from view. Our van went right through this slaughterhouse and tanning factory. We thought, who kills animals to get their skins and tan them? They said, well, there's one group of people that do this, and this is where it's done. This is the stockyard of Calcutta. And, oh, the smell and the stuff, and it, it just set the day off. We just thought, oh, my God, because the, the, the dukkha, the suffering of these animals was there. And my thought was, these people are stealing. They're stealing the lives of the cows. They didn't ask the cows permission to slit their throats and hang them up by the hooves till they drain and then scrape their skin off and... You know, they're stealing the lives of these animals. If the animals could speak, I'm sure they would not give permission, you know, to have their throats cut and have their skin pulled off and then tanned and sold. Not, right? Then I thought, who is stealing these cows from the rest of the Indian citizens? You know, it's like, this is obviously somebody has decided that it's okay to take this life without permission. Only because the animals are voiceless do they... Does this not stop? All right. So we drove through. All right. On our way. And the van is going, and the road is getting narrower and narrower and narrower. And we're thinking, we thought we were going to a Chinese Buddhist temple. So we ask him, You know, we'll get there soon. Don't worry. What Chinese temple? No. So, okay, we passed this hairpin turns and we show up and here in the distance is this walled place high walls with broken bottles on top and barbed wire on top of that and spikes on top of that right here's the Chinese Buddhist temple out in just beyond the slaughterhouse in Chaobaga and we they call ahead and the gates open and we come in and the gates slam shut right? and we're going what is this you know, and here's a monk, and the people who picked us up were his lay disciples, obviously thinking, we're going to bring some rich Americans out to Shurfu's place, and they'll make offerings and support the temple. We were being brought there to be cash cows. You know, we had, you know, the robes on our backs were big shoes. 
But they thought American big shoes must be rich. Ah, okay, we'll take them out there and they'll give Sherpa lots of money. It's like we're going, you know, we eat one meal a day. Are you kidding me? You know, it's like, I'll give you my breakfast and dinner. It's yours, you know, I'm not going to eat it. I never do. So, okay. So, okay, so we go in there and there's a, a lunch and it's, the, the chi is not right. And I'm sitting there eating and I'm noticing that above the wall there are these eyes and fingers, people braving the broken glass and the barbed wire to peek in to see who's inside, right? These are the local folks. We're going, whoa, you know, how come they're so alienated from their environment that they've got to create this detention center to keep the monks in and keep the people out? That can't be the Dharma, you know, what's going on? All right, so we have lunch and the moment comes when it's time to bow and the monk is standing there between us and the door looking with big round eyes expectantly. You know, it's like, so you're going to leave us a gift? You know, and we're going, you know, I think you got the wrong monks, you know. (laughs) It's like, blessings, choose wisely, grasshopper. (laughs) You know, we'll give you that much. And that's all we got. We have basically, uh, we have plane tickets to get to Germany and that's it, you know. And that's all. Seriously. There's very few people who recognize us as monks in India, much less make offerings. We didn't have any money. So they go, uh, all right, well, you know, here's our address. You can mail us the money when you get home. You know. Yeah, okay, so we get in the van, gates slide open, we, the driver, the driver, guns out, heads through this crowd of people. They jump out of the way and we're spinning through the villages. We get to the narrow part of the road and there's a roadblock. Three tree trunks, couple concrete blocks and surrounding the van are ten men holding sticks, axes, machetes and pitchforks beating their way onto the bus, smashing the windows and jumping on the bus, running up and down the aisles, taking everything, rings, watches, Walkmans, that's all there was. No iPods. Apple barely didn't exist at that point. Stealing everything they can and threatening people with chopping off their fingers if they don't give them their wedding rings. The bus driver, the van driver, being the savvy old geezer from Mahabodhi, took the key out, put it under his leg real fast. And the first thing that the robbers did when they ran on the bus was to grab the bus keys. Well, the driver substituted his car key, handed him the car, his, his, uh, his house key, house key. He had the car key under his leg. So he, the guys throw the keys out, you know, and they immobilize the bus behind the, the and they run up and down and hung, hung chows going, Namo Amidomo, Namo Amidomo, top volume, you know, and somebody else is going, Namo great compassion mantra shouting and screaming and it was it was cinematic man if somebody had been grinding away with a movie camera we would it would have been great a great youtube video boy boy <laughs> the american monks get held up in chowbaga you know and so peter peter schmitz 
Guazai, who was our layperson, had a backpack. In the backpack was our tape recorder, all our passports, a camera, and that was that. I had my dad's watch, and I took it off and put it, wedged it between the seat, so I didn't have it on. And the guy comes, and I'm standing like this, you know, just just saying, "What do you need? What do you got? You know, it's like beads. You want beads? I got beads. You know? <laughs> okay, only told. And they they basically they you know they're disgusted because there's the monks don't have anything. The Chinese lay people lost a lot. They lost their watches. They lost their jewels. They lost their you know money belts mostly. And these guys, they were, you know, village guys. Clearly, these were not banditos. They were local men, you know. So they got off the bus and ran away. And we're all trembling, you know, high adrenaline. This canny bus driver says, move the logs. So we pile out, move the logs. He pulls the bus key out from his leg, starts it up and drives away and goes to the local police station, the Chalbaga police station. And uh, Inspector Bata, Inspector Bata comes out. He says, oh, you must have a very bad impression of India, isn't it? <laughs> and go, tell what happened. And he said, you must understand. He said, these are poor people. They have nothing. They eat the dirt, he said. You must understand. And at the, I didn't at the time. You know, we'd been robbed and, you know, by banditos. But when I thought about it, it was true. These were not hardened criminals. These are poor folks who had nothing. And here come the American monks as soon as we went into the monastery, they had us pegged. They, you know, look at all these rich people coming to our village. We never should have gone to the Chinese temple, and that's what Asaji was telling us, that that's not the place to go out sightseeing. You know, we were set up to make offerings to, by the lay people. They should have known better. Oh, they were apologetic. My goodness. And so, we... Uh, <laughs> we spent about three hours in the police station um, and there's another part of the story which is very interesting uh, a Chinese layman on a big Harley Davidson wearing a leather jacket and looking like a Chinese version of Marlon Brando right <laughs> comes out takes off his little you know Marlon Brando hat you know and says uh what happened? You know, he goes, oh, You know, he's ah, He says, I know Inspector Bata, we will get we'll take care of it for you. And we're going, Who are you? You know, he just shows up out of the blue and he's some local guy who's knows the score. So he goes and talks to Inspector Bata. And they get all the paperwork and the Indian legal system is full of paperwork and it's still paper. It's not digital. It's paper. You fill out the forms and you fill out the forms. And so we told him everything that we'd lost and 
stuff. So we finally made it back past the slaughterhouse, back to the Mahabodhi Society in Calcutta. And uh, Bhante Asaji was gracious enough to not be there. So he didn't get to say, I told you so. He had gone on to do something else. And so we just basically kind of recovered. And poor Marty, uh, Hung Chao, did not take it well. He was, he said, Marty said, as soon as the robbers got on the bus, he thought he was going to die because he had the feeling that he owed a life in India. Totally a feeling, he said. We called Master Shrenhua uh, from Calcutta and told him what had happened. And he said to Hung Chao, Sulebeo! Did you die? He said. <laughs> I translated that to Marty. Shrenhua said, you might say that it's because you have a little bit of cultivation that this time you didn't die. In fact, your number was up. He said, you could have given your life then because you, who knows how many lifetimes in India you've, you've been the emperor and killed people, you know. So he said, but because you have a little bit of cultivation and Shirfu didn't say, and because I was taking care of it, but that was the subtext, because I was watching you so you didn't have to die this time, he said. So we're going, oh, you know. So uh, the phone rings the next day, and uh, it's the Chinese guy, Mr. Zhao. He says, come back to the police station. We've got something for you. And we're going, oh, no. Back past the slaughterhouse, back in the van, you know, just so long as you don't have to go into Chaobaga, you know, so, and keep, your, keep all your valuables back in the Mahabodhi Society. Don't take any. So we show up, and... Uh, Inspector Bhatta comes out. He's rubbing his hands. and He says, ho, 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 we caught them, we caught them. He said, this is, uh, this is Policeman Gupta. And Policeman Gupta comes out, and he's about 6'4", and he's got a neck as big as my legs. He says, Inspector Gupta gave him a grudgy good beating. He beat them senseless, you know. We're going, you beat who senseless? These villagers? And he takes us in. And here are the guys from the village, they're all bruised and beaten up and Inspector Gupta gave them a ruddy good beating. We're going, oh no, man. We'll see him again. You know, it's like we've now tied our affinities up with these, these guys, you know. So he said, and here are your passports. <laughs> and he hands us our passports. Had been dumped in a ditch and all the ink had run, right? So all our stamps were all runny. They'd spent the night in the ditch in, in the, the gutter. So we got our passports back and the, uh, the tape recorder, I'm sure, was sold and I, I hope somebody ate because of that tape recorder. But anyway, so that is an eye-opener about cause and effect. And, you know, that was 1983, 1993, 2003, 2011. I'm still digesting the, you know, everything that I learned about blessings, about how much I take for granted, right? Now, living in the Bay Area of Northern California, we're no stranger to, to robbery. In fact, here in Berkeley, this last month, there was a series of burglaries um, six blocks from here. <coughs> 
And the guys who did it, they caught him. The cops caught the robbers. So it happens here too, but it's relative. You know, it's, there's a scale of, of wealth and poverty. How much protection, how much protection do you have? Suppose you are, your stuff is stolen. Pretty much we can expect that if we dial a number, the police will show up. Pretty much we can expect that if we have the wherewithal to get a lawyer, you pretty much expect that somehow justice may or may not be served. It's, you're not on your own. Uh, if you have a lot of money, you, you're sure of what can happen. You, can, you know how to you get the right lawyer. You can, lawyers are like warriors. They go to, go to war for you and they can influence the outcome of the court. You know, my dad was a lawyer. I know about that. So pretty much we have those securities, layers of protection. When you steal, if you take more than is yours, you, you yourself lose those layers of protection. When I think about the faces of those guys climbing on the bus, scared to death because they're holding a big stick. They didn't have any weapons. There weren't any guns in India. They had a big stick. Some 16-year-old guys on the bus thinking, I hope my big brother scares them so I don't have to hit anybody. You know, I saw their faces. Then I saw their faces in the cell having been beaten by Inspector Gupta. You know, and you think, man, no protection. Layers of blessings are not there. Now, do I know for sure that those guys stole? They tried to steal from us. And what was their motive? Probably hunger. Probably being pushed into it for face. Imagine if your brother and your cousins go, but you don't go to rob the folks. What, what, what happens to your status? Various reasons why people would go steal. But if you steal, what happens is you're poor. Because your access to goods has been harmed by your behavior. The second part says, wealth is held in common. You don't have free use of it. What that says is that if you're we, um, in the world, we have personal wealth and we have wealth in common. What would wealth in common be? Access to water. Um, access to fire firemen, right? If you live in an urban area, your house catches on fire, you can pretty much count on fire crews arriving. That's wealth in common. Um, taxes, the benefits of taxes, things like uh, food on the table, food in the markets that you have access to, education. This is wealth in common. It says if you steal, what happens is on the way to getting those goods and services, you don't get them. You don't get them. 
there, much less do you not get the scholarships, do you get the refunds, do you get the bonuses. That stuff somehow goes to your neighbor or your nephew, but not to you. Because the reward, the, re- the retribution for having taken more than your share and depriving other people of it is when it's time for you to get your share, it doesn't come home. It doesn't actually reach your hands and your mouth or your body. That's, that's the Buddha says, is what happens. And underneath it, in parentheses, you don't see it, he's saying, and it's never off. It's not unfair. Cause and effect is fair. Okay, flip it over. That's, that's the Buddha's description of what happens when I steal. He says, if I am generous, if I, with my own hands, make stuff available for others, if I give a lot, I can pretty much come back as a human or as a god, as a deva. But if I come back as a human, there's two kinds of retribution. One is abundant wealth and two use of common resources and ease, access to wealth held in common. Okay, why are people full of blessings? Well, there's not one answer. It's not so simple. But one principle you can pull out of it. Why are people wealthy? Often it's because at some point in some life they gave. They made stuff available for others. And why do some people seem to get on the gravy train? Scholarships come to them. The bonuses come to them. They get the windfall. They, you could say, win the lottery, but that's, that's a little bit out there. I mean, that's rare. It's one in however many million. But how come there's some people who always wind up first in line? The Buddha would say, no accident. And he would say, do you want to be first in line or do you want to be in the top hundred who get chosen or... Do you want to be sure that when the cut, you know, when they say, you know, we're going to let the first group in and then close the door, that you're in that first group, the way to do it is to be generous and give. So the stuff that flows in, you take a share and move it on. That's how material flows through your life. Because in the end, I mean, the bigger perspective is nothing that we own is ours. BP says that's our oil under the gulf. No, it's not. Who says that's BP's oil? Well, we bought it in a deal from Conoco or from Shell. Who says it's Shell's? That oil doesn't belong to you. You know, my contract says it. Your contract is a piece of paper. It's temporary. It's not your stuff, right? This is not my stuff. Get down to the fact, right? 
I'm borrowing this. It's temporary. It doesn't look like it did when I was 15. It doesn't look like it's going to look on another 10 years. Right? It came through my mom from my dad. It's not here. It's not theirs either. Right? Nobody owns the stuff. We use it skillfully or less skillfully. And temporarily, sure, that's, you know, I, I hope you're not in my bed tonight, right? That's, that's my bed, all right? So just tell, letting you know, I'm going to sleep there tonight. So sleep in your bed tonight. That's your bed, okay. But, in fact, it's not. But you get the point. Some, it's, we use, we, there's a, a useful designation, my stuff. Because our bodies need things to support our lives. In fact, they're not ours. So with that, you step back and you take another look at it. You think, do I have enough to satisfy my needs? If so, can I satisfy my needs and then take the extra and move it through? Share it. If I can, I'm planting the seeds that will result in plenty of stuff in the future. No poverty. And the ability to give to others. So, okay. That's the principle here. That's, you know, what are you listening to? You're listening to a Buddhist sutra, words of the Buddha, talking about, you say, the bodhisattva path, these awakened spiritual beings. How interesting. This is a Buddhist text talking about what stuff. How come in my life I've gone through periods of well, for example, I lived outdoors for three years on the Pacific Coast Highway, eating once a day if people gave me food. I had my stuff stolen three times. Down to my... They stole my Zafu. <laughs> they did. They stole my... Sierra Design 6040 coat. Master Shrinwa said, Don't take that. I said, Master it's my own raincoat. Don't take that. It looks too nice. You'll lose it. Right? Three months later, came back. Guess what? Car door was jacked open. Oh. Okay. So let's take something less eye catching. So, and. Yet, look at, you know, look at this comfortable monastery. There's even heat tonight. Man. Okay. So, um, interesting. Buddhist text talking about stuff and how, where stuff comes from. Quality of my life. And the, the, the folks next door who may be you ever notice there are people who no matter how much they have, they always feel poor? And the folks who say, I got plenty of nothing and nothing's plenty for me. It's really a state of mind. As long as your needs are met. If you are hurting, if you don't have enough, then of course, that's all you can think about is, I'm hungry, I'm cold. And that changes your perspective. But if you have enough, and it's just a question of, Something a little different tonight. Let's try an uh, uh, Ethiopian restaurant. You know. Then consider. 
consider sharing more. Okay, by golly, time is up. I wish we had more time. Um, I had prepared, I wrote a whole paper on Buddhist attitudes towards the environment because the environment is a place where we steal or share. Uh, and I didn't, didn't get it tonight. Not enough time. Um, maybe next week we can do that. The next evil and good has to do with relationships. Our next paragraph is sexual misconduct. So we'll, uh, we'll open that up next week and look at that and maybe come back and talk a little bit more about uh, stealing and giving, stealing and sharing. What is enough? Do you have the attitude of abundance or the attitude of scarcity? Those are places we could go uh, if we were to continue tonight's topic. Maybe one topic per week is not enough. These, this is so rich. You know, there's so much to talk about. Maybe we ought to give more, more weeks per topic. Um, I'm pretty much going to go week by week because uh, we need to make progress through the text. But there are ten of these and they're incredibly profound and good. It's good stuff. All right. Um, for now, we'll, we'll park it at that point and let's transfer the merit. There's uh, in your sutra text there should be a dedication of merit page. It's interactive the way we do it. You you make a wish, send out your your heart, your goodness, however you'd like to do it. Um, Twenty thousand families in Queensland are under tents tonight. Uh, it's, they say it's like Katrina in New Orleans, in Queensland. Brisbane, Brisbane is a city like Sacramento. It's a capital. It's an ultra-modern town. And 20,000 families are underwater. Nobody thought that would happen. So, those are folks who could definitely use prayers for their continued well-being. Their lives have been turned totally, totally upside down. So, in a very short time. So. Do you send out that goodness however you choose? Our minds as one and dream.
Yeah. 